Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Our guest on this week's episode is Angela Saini. Uh, her latest book, Superior, has been popping up on pretty much every best books of the year list you care to mention. So we'll be chatting to her about that as well as her other work as well. Before we get on to that, a reminder about Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, which starts tonight at King's Place and then is also on Friday the 13th, Sunday the 15th, Thursday the 19th and Saturday the 21st. If you are coming along to one of those shows, remember we are doing a collection for the Euston Food Bank at each show. So bring along something uh if you're able to and you can leave it at the collection point at the merchandise stand in the foyer, there's a list on cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons of the most needed items. And we'll also be doing a silent auction at the Nine Lessons shows this year. There'll be an exhibition in the foyer of 10 of our favourite photos uh, from Cosmic Shambles events in years past, taken by Steve Best, who's been uh, one of our official photographers for years. Uh, We'll be getting most of those signed uh, by the people in the pictures as well, so people like Robin and Brian and uh, Chris Hadfield and Josie and so on. And you can bid on those, we'll get them signed, and then all of the profits that we make from that auction will be going towards the charities uh, that we also donate all the ticket sales profits to from the Nine Lessons shows. And now, uh, just for a break from me, Robin, he's also recorded... And now, just for a break from me, Robin has also recorded some admin Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Before we get started with this week's episode, very quick announcement to say that tickets are now on sale for Sea Shambles that we're doing at the Albert Hall, which will be uh, a look with joy and curiosity and occasionally fear at the reality of the sea, what lies within it, what might lie within it, and the monsters we believed lived within it. And uh, our guests will include Lem Say, Helen Chersky, and also Stephen... Steve Bakshul, in fact, I'll say that again. And our guests will include Lem Say, Steve Bakshul, Helen Chersky, and... Josie Long and I will be there as well. And there are lots more announcements coming up of top secret guests. Also, don't forget to check out the Sea Shambles advent calendar on the main Cosmic Shambles site. A new post every day featuring some science or stories or something about the ocean. Uh, Helen Chersky is curating that. Lots of articles from her, as well as guest posts from Robin and Michael Legg and Tim O'Brien, Helen Scales and lots of others as well. So check that out, cosmicshambles.com slash cshamblesadvent. Now on to this week's episode. Hello, welcome to uh, Robin and Josie's book, Shambles. Uh, Sometimes there are other people as well as Josie or instead of Josie. Today, there's no one at all. We have, uh, yeah, there's just an an, an empty chair or indeed an ice sculpture uh, that we borrowed from Channel 4 in place of Josie Long. And uh, we're joined, or rather I'm joined. I still always think we, see, that's the... we're joined by an author who I've, I've read her two most recent books. Uh, Andrew Saini's work is uh, very interesting in terms of looking at how the culture of, of science has often been shaped by the predominant culture of the time uh, in terms of, more often than not, actually, what uh, uh, the, the, the white male culture of science has wanted to see uh, about both women and also race. And the books are Inferior and Superior, and we're going to talk about those. But first, I wanted to talk about something based around Inferior, which is you talk quite early on about jo- Jocelyn Bell Burnell, 
who, of course, is, is most famous for discovery of pulsars, though she didn't receive the uh, Nobel Prize. Though she actually says she's quite... I don't know if you've ever discussed this with her. She said, I'm, I'm glad I didn't win the Nobel Prize, because if you win the Nobel Prize, they don't give you anything else. <laughs> but if, if, if... She said, instead, I get a, a different thing every week and I get a slap-up feast as well. So... Um, yeah, there's always an upside <laughs> to not winning a Nobel Prize. But it is an, it's an interesting... Because her background I was I remember her saying that you know she wasn't even going to be taught science at school she had uh, it was only her and one other girl whose parents I think in her case her dad went into the school and said why is my daughter not being taught science she wants to learn science so I wanted to start with with you as someone who is is, is very interested in science what your experience was growing up in terms of being you know a young woman who's interested in science well, I think this is probably the only thing I have in common with Jocelyn Bell Burnell, but my dad was an engineer and he very much from an early age instilled in me and my sisters a love of science and maths and making things especially. So he loves DIY. He still does a lot of DIY and I got that from him. Just for me, science and engineering is about taking things apart, understanding how they work, understanding how the world works. Um, and I was just fascinated by that from a very young age. It's funny, I think there's a generation of men who um, grew up around the time of the Second World War, just after the Second World War, who'd seen their mums work. Because very often their dads, so my dad comes from a military family, his dad was away during the Second World War. He saw his mum do everything. And I think for that generation of men who then became fathers, um, they really encouraged their girls into science and engineering. They could see that they could do these things because they'd seen their mothers do them and their sisters do them. Um, and my dad was definitely one of those uh, generation. And in school, was that carried through in school? Yeah, I mean, I was the only girl in a lot of my classes. And the reason for that is not that girls didn't like science, but the ones who did tended to want to do medicine. So they went down the biology track. And because I wanted to do physics and maths, um, that meant I was going down the engineering track. Um, so I ended up being the only girl in a lot of my classes. Just that That's just how things worked out. And I never really thought about it very much until I came to write Inferior, oddly. Um, I don't really know how I rationalise that to myself. A part of me, if I'm very honest, perhaps thought that I was different from other girls, mm. that maybe because I liked these subjects or I was good at physics and maths that I was different and this was a boy's thing but I happened to like it and that made me somehow different. Writing superior made me realise actually that's not the case. There is nothing about me or my interests or my abilities is any different from any other woman. It's just that I had a set of experiences that led me to make different choices. Because it is interesting because with science immediately you end up with subsets within subsets within subsets first of all anyone who's interested in science is immediately oh, that's a bit weird you know a bit of a weird. <laughs> and then that as you said also that kind of idea which still seems to go on first of all there's so many people who go oh I've, I haven't got a scientific mind or I don't really know how to think scientifically and then on, and then as you said then there's the second part of it as well which is there is still this battle and I, and I think there is hopefully an increase now in exposure where when people look at the panels in science festivals hopefully they're getting better hopefully they're getting broader hopefully they're showing a kind of wider certainly you know i remember when we did infinite monkey cage in the early days with with no pride i say that we did not have 
very diverse. You know, it, it took a few series to go, hang on a minute, let's just have a look at what our Wikipedia page says about our guests. This is not good. Um, so I want to say Inferior, which is the, the, the thing that I feel sad about both Inferior and Superior, actually, I'll bring this up straight away, is I love Charles Darwin and I really <laughs> want it. You know, I've read lots of Charles Darwin and someone gave me a big cardboard cutout of Charles Darwin. But it is true in both about race science and also the science around um, sex and gender. Not um, oh, D- Darwin was... Uh, <laughs> There, he's both a, you know, a revolutionary in one way, though a very quiet revolutionary, obviously, and then a, a traditionalist. Yeah, and I feel bad picking on Darwin in particular because he is also a hero of mine. He was such a careful, thoughtful scientist in so many areas of his work, you know, really cautious and uh, the model scientist in some ways. But when it came to women... He looked around, he saw that women weren't achieving as much as men, and he just immediately assumed this must be biological, this must be natural, which was actually very unscientific of him and really sat at odds with all the rest of the work that he did. Um, And I think I, I bring him up then not as an example of someone who thought against the grain. He was completely with the grain of other Victorian thinkers. Everybody thought this way. Many women thought this way as well. Um, Although there was dissent and there were other voices against this way of thinking, he was certainly with the mainstream. But I think the lesson is that if Darwin, someone who's so careful and so thoughtful, could fall into this trap, then surely any of us can. Any of us can be that lazy in our thinking about stereotypes. Well, this is... uh... I mean, in both books, this idea where culture is ignored, and we still see this, the, 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 the fact that everything that is around us somehow becomes uh, objective rather than subjective. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what was going on with Darwin to a much, you know, I, I, I think a far worse extent as well with, you know, Francis Galton and his hereditary genius and all of those <laughs> different ideas of which, which I, I think are now being played around with. I think a lot of what we see in modern government in the UK is a sense that those who are deprived and living in deprived, well, they've kind of brought that on themselves and they probably almost have the gene for poverty. And, you know, the kind of Reese Mogg style seems to return to almost, you know, the, the divine right of the rulers. Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing that. There's no doubt about it. If there's one thing, race in this um, context, I think, overlaps with class. Because if you look at the early 20th century and the rise of the eugenics movement within the UK, Um, There was this real conflation of race and class, this idea that immigrants were somehow necessarily, depending on the types of immigrants they were, were necessarily inferior uh, with respect to the native population and also that poor people were also naturally inferior and that both groups were feckless and um, breeding, outbreeding the kind of middle educated superior middle classes. And although to some extent we understand that the race element of that is a really poor way of thinking about human difference and it is racist, the class element in this country hasn't completely gone away. I still see that rhetoric in the way, like you say, that governments, successive governments, not just Tory governments, but Labour Labour governments too, still think about um, the poor as a problem to be dealt with or that, you know, somehow they can't be helped and all we can do is control them and manage them somehow. 
I always find that that Stephen Jay Gould quote, which I'm, I'm sure you know about, which is uh, comes up quite often in, in, in any any time that uh, there's a, a memorial for Einstein, where Stephen Jay Gould said, you know, I, I, I don't eulogise Einstein. I think of how many Einsteins were toiling in the fields. Yeah. And I, I certainly there's a, a couple of friends of mine who would have grown up in the 60s who are of that group who broke out from coming from very often kind of deprived background. And then I, when I wander around the BBC and stuff and I think, oh, we're returning <laughs> to the same voices, you know. Yeah, we really are. And if we look at our class of leaders at the moment, many of them are not just privately educated, but Eton educated. They've had really um, privileged lives. And is it any surprise then that they look around and think, oh, well, we got here by merit. You know, we're somehow just better, naturally better. And that's why the world looks the way it does. That is what underlies a lot of the resistance to um, efforts to eradicate inequality, whether it whether it's to do with gender or whether it's to do with race or class, whatever it is, it's a class of people who have power and wealth saying to everybody else, we have power and wealth not because of history or social circumstances or culture or, you know, because our parents had it, but we were just born this way. We're just born better. Um, and that is incredibly pernicious. You see it playing out everywhere all the time. What is remarkable to me is that we don't resist it enough, you know, that we somehow buy into that myth that they are there by merit. Of course they're not. How could how could that possibly be the case? I'm trying to remember which book I read where it was looking at, for instance, that idea of, of, of exceptionalism that runs through the DNA. And the example was always that, in fact, if you look, for instance, at people, you know, high-achieving intellects, high-achieving uh, sports people, all of these different groups, very rarely do their children ever achieve the same thing. So there should be a through line of going, oh, the great family remain great. But actually... Yeah. They kind of have have reached a level which is is has a, has a greater advantage, and from that point maybe are able to look down. Mm. But very rarely do they achieve the same things as their 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 parents have. And that's what we should expect, actually. Statistically, um, remarkable people tend to emerge from the middle of the population because that's where most people are. You know, these kind of exceptional qualities don't just get inherited. Although it is true that if, um, for instance, we know that there is a heritable component to intelligence. It's not completely heritable, but there's a heritable component. And a child of exceptionally bright parents is likelier to be smarter than average, but not likely to be as smart as their parents because of regression to the mean. Um, and we know that most of the exceptional individuals will emerge from the middle of the population because that's where most people are. So statistics can explain a lot of this for us. And yet we still have this idea, we still kind of cling to this idea of heredity explaining um, so much of what goes on in society. And we, and like I said before, we accept it. You know, we look at, you know, dynasties of actors and actresses or dynasties of politicians and... We can't see that for what it is, which is nepotism very often. Mm. It's not really talent always. Um, we just think it, that there's something natural going on there. That's something I think we need to fight against because so many people lose out in that process. So many talented people who don't have brilliant parents or wealth or privilege lose out. You, in, in terms of that idea of kind of a, a exceptionalism in in inferior, you talk quite early on about the one, one of the the ideas has been that men will always be on on the two sides. We will have tremendously exceptional men, but you also have people who are you know tremendously unexceptional. But <laughs> women are known for being that they're, they're kind of that sex is the the mean average sex, where generally they're they're kind of and that yeah. you know that that was a again that kind of idea 
of of the the extreme you know the 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 peacock one side the the, the male flamboyant peacock and then the very dark but 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 women are kind of you know they you know, they've done well <laughs> very stable it's almost like I mean Josie and I always have this this joke of of the uh, how women are portrayed in sitcoms which is very often while the uh, uh, while the man is is an interesting and extreme and absurd character mm-hmm. uh, the woman just goes oh Tony don't do that and that's almost <laughs> like that, that, that that's the almost the example of how people I mean now you do see you know, there's a big change and you see one Wonderful things like Rosheen Connerty, who's a remarkable uh, comedy uh, actor as well. But but that seems to illustrate one of those ideas that existed, and almost mm-hmm. what Darwin kind of suggests as well. That you know, well, well done, women. You're, 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 you know, very stable and very helpful. Yeah, we're kind of like the supporting cast in the yeah. human species, um, and that's again something we have to challenge because, of course, women can be. Uh, you know, all the variety that you see in men, you also see in women. We are not this homogeneous mass of people who are all the same um, any more than men are. Um, And that's, you know, this is something that translates not just in terms of eccentricity, but also in genius, you know, the way that we think about cleverness, this idea that there are far more male geniuses than female geniuses, or we so easily put the label of genius onto men than we do to women. I mean, the number of men who get called geniuses kind of just like that, um, whereas women really have to fight for that label. And even then, we kind of subtly think that it's hard work that got a woman to where she is rather than kind of natural brilliance. Um, That I find really strange because why would there not be as many female geniuses? We just don't have a mechanism to explain why there wouldn't be as many brilliant women as brilliant men. I think there's a disparity in national treasures as well. I think men are far more of that awful bloody, I hate when people get called a um, uh if, if you call Alan Bennett a national treasure, not properly reading between the lines, or indeed the lines, what a wonderful human being he is, though. Um, uh, but I, the, I, I mean, I've, art, this seems to come up a lot. Where people, I, I've I've read various articles where people have have said, yeah, but we have to look. Why have there been no exceptional female artists? And then you actually think that this this year, in particular this year on tour, I've noticed the number of lead exhibitions, mm-hmm. which are you know the, the Paula Rago exhibition, which is on at the moment in mm-hmm. in in Edinburgh, was previously on uh, in Milton Keynes and uh, Dorothea Tanning, yeah. and more and more people who also were in that. Quite often, people who were known for being the wife of yes. a famous artist, <laughs> yes. and then they go, well, you know, we've been looking at her work for quite a while, and we always just thought that she was, you know, very much the keeper of the work of Jackson Pollock. But it turns out, very good, very good, well done. And that's again, that seems to be offer some sense of 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 possible optimism. Well, the thing is, what is good and what is bad in art or something as subjective as as literature, really it's up to us to decide. And we, you know, a body of people decided that this person's work is good and that person's work doesn't deserve any attention. But really that's a completely arbitrary decision that a group of people have made. So, for example, William Blake. I'm a big fan of Blake's poetry. I'm not a big fan of his art. And I imagine that if a woman had done that art at that time, nobody would have looked at it. Nobody would have rated it. To me, fair. To me, No one rated personally. William Blake at the time as well. They thought he was rubbish. <laughs> even now, even now, though, you know, I don't think he would be, you know, treated with the respect that he is now had he been a woman. Um that's my personal opinion, <laughs> to say not everybody need agree with me. But um, what we find brilliant or what we find 
good even, is really heavily subjective and it's completely dictated by the cultures that we belong to. So, um, for example, when we look at indigenous art in other parts of the world, I collect indigenous art from India because there's a wonderful tradition of it there. For me, that is incredible, you know, and it's a living tradition that is still being carried on by by artists living today. And yet we don't know any of their names. We don't know who they are. This is just kind of, it's treated as uh, as like a folk tradition, not with, I feel, the respect that it should be given. And the reason for that is the art, that's what the art community has decided to do. So all of this is open to interpretation and all of the parameters can move. There is no reason why the rules that we have around how we look at objects of beauty now need to be the rules that we have in 50 years' time. Well, that's it. That... I, I think in some ways reflects on something that you said in Inferior, which is also uh, that the point where you start to see not merely a sexual divide in the practice of science, but the sexual divide of the way that, you know, the sex itself is judged was at a point of professionalization. that that is where then it suddenly becomes this is a male area. This is a. So could you could you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, um, I I think we can assume that if we go right back to the beginning, anthropologists believe that the ways that we live now, so patriarchy, the systems that we have now, were not always there. Societies have lived in many different ways. In fact, they still do live in many different ways. So the societies in which uh, scientific cultures emerged have been very different. Before modern science emerged in Western Europe, there were scientific traditions in the Middle East, in India, in China, all over the world. Um, And they didn't have the same kind of baggage, which is why today in the Middle East, actually, there are very many women doing maths and engineering. In fact, the first female Fields Medal winner was an Iranian-American. And I don't think there's any accident there because Iran has a very good tradition of encouraging women in mathematics and seeing women as mathematicians. Um, In Europe, because of the time around the Enlightenment that modern Western science was created, there were these very deep-rooted patriarchal cultures, this society that already had decided that women were not the same as men, that there were separate spheres for men and women, partly because of religion, but partly also because that was what Western European society was like. Um, And so at the very birth of the Uh, scientific institutions that still exist today, the scientific academies, the universities, it was decided that women had no place, that they didn't need to be there because they didn't have the intellectual capacity to be there. They couldn't offer anything. And in fact, there were many universities that didn't even allow professors to marry because the presence of women was thought to kind of drag down their ability to do this really hard intellectual labour. So given that the very establishment of science in Europe was predicated on this assumption that women can't do this, what then do you expect scientists coming out of that establishment to say for a few hundred years? What they said was that women are intellectually inferior. This is what Darwin said. Um, And they kept saying that until the middle of the 20th century. The Royal Society didn't admit women as members until 1945. So that's within living memory. My dad was born in 1945. Things changed very slowly. And I think it's entirely because the entire establishment was built upon this idea that women were not the equals of men. There was a I've just started reading a book by you might know it Merlin Stone, uh, who was a sculptor, and she wrote a book called uh, The Paradise Papers, which I think was then republished under another title. And it's all about 
the the loss of the the goddess. Yes. And and about the kind of and and it's because fa- I was going around actually with Brian Cox when we were on tour we went to a museum of kind of uh, of, of human social history in Singapore, mm-hmm. and it had a whole floor of different religions. And in every room that you went into, there were these fantastic flamboyant gods, both evil and good. And I've been some of there. Them... I was in Singapore this summer. I think oh, I've man, seen it's... that very same gallery. It's, it's really good. It's really amazing, yeah. Because there's all those yes. kind of like, you know, and, and you go, yeah. there, there, there's a god that's mm. kind of dealing with sex and love, and there's yes. a god who's kind of, well, the good and bad and the yes. war. And, the, and then you go into the, the Christian section, and it's just lots of, you know, there's Jesus on the cross, <laughs> sad and bleeding, and a religion based around you did that <laughs> that's what you did you've got your original sin and and w- that's kind of what almost led me to, to to merlin stone's work was because just thinking about the importance of it's a very well written book actually there's so much kind of but the importance of going once once the goddess stops being the 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 lead you know and all of her sons and all those things they're very minor gods yeah. that the the way that the abrahamic faith become this kind of you know there's a man god mm. and there's only one you lose all that flamboyant kind of, you know, all of those internal feuds and battles. I've also thought it's very boring. That's why I think. That's why I think, you know, not not to not to attack Christians, but there's, there's just one God and He did everything. And it's a very, even that seems. Like, I just wondered if you have again going back in terms of the different cultures that within the Western culture, where so much has been dominated by this kind of singular male God idea. Yeah, I mean, I was I, my family is Indian, and I've lived in India, and um, obviously Hinduism is a faith that has a multitude of, in fact, an endless number of gods. You can really you know, describe anything as a god or goddess as you, if you want. And certainly it's not a religion in the sense that, in the same way that we think about religion uh, in the Abrahamic religions. Um, and these different systems of faith that stretch back many thousands of years certainly have different ways of thinking about what it means to be a man or woman. There's a lot more... I, I hesitate to use 21st century terms when describing things that are that old because those concepts didn't exist then. But certainly this fluidity, not just between men and women, but also between uh, man and nature and animal and human. And you see this in different spiritual traditions all over the world, that there are far more fluid and different ways of thinking about who we are. This kind of binary man is man and woman is woman and, you know, God is a man and these very fixed ways of thinking. I don't know if they're uniquely uh, European or Western, but um, they certainly aren't shared universally. You know, people think in many multitudes of ways. There are cultures in the world in which children don't have a gender until they hit puberty. You know, there are many different ways of thinking about who we are and what our past look like. There's a lovely book actually called The Kingdom of Women, if we're talking about female goddesses. Um, so there, anthropologists agree there are probably no matriarchal societies around anymore if there, were, if there ever was one. Uh, but there are matrilineal societies, and one of these um, is the Moswo in China. And I write about them very briefly in Inferior. But um, this is a very old traditional community in what is otherwise a very patriarchal society. China is hugely patriarchal. But here they worship a mother goddess. And um, it's almost as though the gender roles that we see in the rest of society are reversed. So the women, when they go to the bars, they are the ones picking up the men and gambling and drinking. And um, wealth and property gets passed down the female line. Everybody lives in their mother's house. 
Um, so there are different ways of thinking about the past and who we really were. I hesitate. I have to read Merlin Stone's books. I'm reading Maria Gimbutas at the moment, and she wrote very much about this idea of the mother goddess. Um, so she uh, worked in Eastern Europe, and she looked at these old societies um, in which she believed before... Uh, you know, the rise of Europe, there were these kind of ancient goddess traditions and that that was kind of overthrown at one point. Um, and she lost popularity for a while, but she's regaining popularity now. I think we just don't know. That's the, you know, big question. We don't know how we lived in the past. But I think one thing we can say is that patriarchy started at some point. It was not always there because when you look at hunter-gatherer societies, they tend to be more egalitarian. When you were writing Inferior, what I really want to talk about ritual and stuff now because I'm really getting to a load of folklore <laughs> stuff, but that's totally off point, so we won't do that. Um, but I, uh, I just saw a poster for Stranger Things, the secret cinema thing, and as I walked past it, I thought, yeah, that's we, we've run out of ritual now. So instead, your ritual is to dress up as someone from Stranger Things and run around London, and that's kind of replaced it. But um, we'll do that as a subset <laughs> uh, another time. But what for you was, as, as you researched Inferior, were there, there any points where you thought, I mean, so I presume when you went into it, you thought, well, you have a, a rough sense in the build-up of information over the period of time that you've been growing up that you think, right, well, I, I think I have some idea mm. of why this science has ended up uh, this way or did for a long time. What was most startling? I mean, were, were there certain points as you went through those history books, as you went through those old libraries, when you looked at the old documents and papers where you went, whoa, I didn't realise it had gone that far or that these ideas were so deep-rooted? If I'm honest, I had my own preconceptions challenged by writing Inferior because, like I said, when I was growing up and I didn't really interrogate these views that I had, I think I believed myself to be different because I was interested in these things. So I did think that, for example, I had a boyfriend at university who loved telling me that boys have better spatial awareness than girls. And I was the engineer here who he was telling that to. But I internalised it. We internalise these things, these messages that we get from society, and we start to believe them. We don't even question them after a while. So when I started writing the book, and I hadn't written on biology very much because most of my career I'd I'd been a journalist, but then when I started doing science writing, it was mainly engineering and physical sciences I was writing about. And here I was learning that in psychological sciences, when tests were done, actually there was hardly any difference in spatial awareness between men and women. All these things that for a long time I thought there was a huge gap between men and women, psychologically or intellectually, there really wasn't. And that was such an affront to my ideas about myself and about other women. I was completely challenged in that sense. And it really turned on its head my entire way of thinking about who I was and also about being a woman in the first place, you know, what, what it means to be a woman in society, what it means to grow older or be a mum or work, be a working mum. I'd I started writing Inferior just after coming off maternity leave. And obviously, this is something we all think about when we have kids is what is our place in society? Suddenly, you start feeling these pressures around childcare and responsibility and where does that responsibility lie? And it was so liberating to learn about the ways in which women have lived through history, that actually women have always worked. They've always done hard labour while having children, while looking after children. We aren't these kind of weak, feeble, frail creatures that sometimes we're painted to be. And we're certainly not in any 
intellectually way different, that was absolute freedom for me, you know. And I was already a feminist, but it just made my feminism even stronger because if we don't have biological explanations for the huge gaps that we see in society, then we have to look elsewhere. And that means there are a lot of structural problems out there. I think that's a, one of the last uh, recordings we did was with um, Joan Smith, whose most recent book is about how a, a very large number of, of, of terrorists from the last 10 years uh, and a little bit further back than that, uh, the violence comes first. It's not, it, it wasn't religion or fundamentalist religion. They're, they're people with... And, and that, of course, change, I think, is disturbing for people because it's very... It's much easier to say, well, some people believe in this religion, it's a religion of violence and this, but if it actually turns out to be, oh, it turns out there is such a deep-rooted misogyny and this is where the, that requires, as you said, changing society in quite a major way. Yeah, and I think this is these are problems we all carry, actually, to some extent. Like I said, I internalised some of the prejudices and stereotypes I grew up with, and that is true of every single one of us. None of us grow up in a perfect culture, in a perfect society where we are not exposed to these things. Um, and it's impossible to do that because to be human is to be rooted in a culture and be part of a cultural society. Um, and so we have to examine ourselves first. I interviewed people, not just for inferior, but for superior particularly, who deny my equal humanity. Just because I'm brown, they genuinely cannot see beyond that and see me as fundamentally inferior to them, as like a different species from them, that I will never be equal. But the reason I had to do that is because those views come from somewhere. They, they're not, nobody is born this way. No child is born believing in the inherent inequality of the world or believing that some people are better than others. Those, they have to be instilled with those beliefs. And just like my biases come from somewhere, their biases come from somewhere. And we have to kind of do that legwork and hard work of understanding why people believe the things they do. When you were researching Superior, how, how similar, or indeed, what, what were the similarities and what were the differences in terms of how science had also managed to go, right, so there is this racial divide? How similar was that to seeing you know, the, the way that the science had created the sexual divide? Um, there were a lot of similarities. So, for example, again, at the birth of Western science, uh, European science, just as there was thought to be a hierarchy between men and women, there was also thought to be a hierarchy between certain groups of people because this was a time that not just patriarchy was ascendant, but also slavery, colonialism, imperialism. This was a time when already people were being treated differently based on where they were geographically. And so these ideas of natural difference then fed into that and then again reinforced it. So there was a kind of dialogue happening for hundreds of years between the sciences and society and politics in terms of how to frame the difference that people perceived and how that fed into political inequality and how people were treated. So science was often used to justify slavery or to justify colonialism, this idea that we are a superior set of people and we have a right to colonise or even wipe out or eradicate, which is what they try to do in Australia, wipe out a group of people because they are going extinct anyway. They are less evolved or they're inferior to us. Um, so you see it's a similar framework of thinking about people. It just played out in very different ways. So the violence and the 
for me, many of the atrocities of the last few hundred years can be laid at the door of this idea of racial difference. Um, the, the genocides of the last couple of hundred years certainly can. This idea that there are groups of people that are so innately different that pose such a threat to other groups that we cannot even tolerate their existence. Well, I'm fascinated. In terms of Indigenous people of Australia, there's been a, a big change in the last 20 years, hasn't there, in terms of... I, I'm trying to remember, you I, You mentioned the book, actually. I forget that he, he wrote it about five years ago. There's a book... Billy which Griffiths. Based, book, yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a fascinating, again, where yes. it's, you know, what people have wanted to, 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 to believe or been given to believe is, you know, here are these... You know, are they just roam around, really, and, and then suddenly going, well, actually, you know, all these different sense of culture and art and, you know, farming and all of those... So do you feel, is that a story, are those kind of stories, do you think that sometimes, not merely there's a resistance to narrative, but do we get to a point where there is a censoring of those, that even amongst, uh, you know, institute, it's like, there's a lot of evidence for this, but do you know what, this is not helpful for the way we wish society to be. <laughs> there is, although I do feel um, that... In Australia in particular, and I can see this happening also in the US, there is this slow um, but steady acceptance of the richness and beauty and uh, remarkable intelligence of Indigenous cultures that once were seen to be um, on their way out, that were seen to be at a different stage of evolution and and. Uh, completely irrelevant to the progress of humankind, you know, a, a kind of throwback to the past, how we all used to live. Actually, these cultures uh, were always very vibrant. They still are vibrant now. They are modern. They've always been evolving. Um, in Australia, there was this tendency until relatively recently, and Billy Griffiths describes this quite well in his book, Deep Time Dreaming, um, of seeing... Aboriginal Australians as this kind of um, throwback to the past, that they were kind of Stone Age people, somehow frozen in time. They were never frozen in time. Their culture was always... It may have been a very old culture, possibly 60,000 years old, but it was always moving and it was always... Um, it showed a great deal of multiplicity as well. There were different cultures depending on the area that you were in. They shaped the landscape. They built wonderful, sustainable ways of living. They had these beautiful artworks, you know, such a rich, diverse culture by an invading force treated as completely disposable, that it had no meaning and no value whatsoever, that it could be thrown away. For me, that is the greatest tragedy of all, that here is a group of people who not only physically there was an attempt to wipe them out, as it was described, kind of breeding the colour out of Australia. And, you know, some of the earliest pieces of legislation, the White Australia policy, tried to actually do that, to breed out the colour. But also this kind of cultural genocide, just wiping out all this wonderful tens of thousands of years of knowledge and wisdom which actually Australia could really use right now um, in the in the assumption of superiority, cultural and biological superiority. And it's only now very late that people are reckoning with this and trying to, in, in my opinion, too late, trying to make amends. I, I think too much has been lost now, but um, we can at least be honest about the past and, you know, Try, try and reclaim what we can and try and protect what we can. Sorry, I 
probably interrupted you in a previous podcast and I'm going to interrupt you again. Be sure to check out everything else going on at CosmicShambles.com. We've got other podcasts such as Science Shambles where myself and Helen Chersky chat to all sorts of brilliant scientists about their current work and Brain Yapping with Dean Burnett and Rachel England tackling questions about the brain. Exclusive blogs from top science writers like John Butterworth, Susie Gage, Dean Burnett, Ginny Smith and others. Videos, documentaries and lots of live events. The Cosmic Shambles Network is the place for people who are curious about the universe and everything it contains and things that might also it doesn't contain but we're just kind of mucking about with those ideas you know all of that stuff just move on as we're getting towards the end on on other books as well which is what were the books when you were younger do you remember what are the ones that have inspired you to be a writer to inspire you to investigate the things you know again inspired your curiosity I have to say, when I was at school, I did love writing, but I went to a state school and I really never imagined that I could be a journalist or a writer. I remember telling my chemistry teacher once I'd love to be a science journalist and she was just like, Angela, just forget it. That's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. But what I loved was... um, you know, like a lot of people, I read a lot of um, science fiction and fantasy, Ursula Le Guin and... um, I got lost in those worlds. That that really was wonderful to me. The books that really stayed with me from when I was little, The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. And there was a lovely book, and the title of it I can't remember, but I literally think about this book every day, which is a young adult book about a boy who was... Um, who was sent away to live in this stately home with another boy who bullied him and at the end he commits suicide. I don't know if you remember what the Susan name of this Hill? book. That's, yes, it's it, Susan it's, Hill's it's, book, but uh, I can't remember what the name of it yeah, is. Yeah, that's uh, uh, the um, castle... And we're getting there. Oh, I can't uh, I'm the king of the castle. King of the castle, yes, is king it? king of the castle, yeah. I think. Or something oh, like that. Oh, that's a tremendously... Yeah. Uh, that it's was, so for powerful. anyone who's just listening, that sounded like we were playing charades in here, didn't it? It's like, <laughs> the, 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 the king of the castle. But it, I, I remember being really disturbed by that book. Yeah, and it was such a powerful book, but it's so gentle in the way that it told its story. And I think that's one of the things I try to do with my work is not... I, I try not to write polemic. I try to just gently guide the reader with me um, to sometimes quite devastating things. Oh, do you know what Susan Hill? I really <laughs> like her work, but you know that thing that because of social media and the mass and uh, news media, I now go, oh no, I've heard loads of her opinions now, and I'm not sure. And, you think, and it's such a pity that that happens. You know, uh, to be honest, I won't be reading as many Lionel Shriver books as I oh, originally planned. Know. You know, there's that. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? As as for for authors and anyone in a public sphere now, oh. which is. The amount of opinion that is required to <laughs> to generate whatever means that sometimes you go, you know, in the they same way, the obvious something. example being, you know, that shelf where I used to have my Morrissey records. And, know. you know, there's just a bit where you go, ah, OK. Yeah, I write about Morrissey in Superior because my sister was a huge fan. And now she's not a huge fan, obviously. And it's tough. It is tough. I'm not of this view that we should separate the person and their work at all. But I do think that we kind of have to accept that we are all capable of making mistakes and having bad ideas and believing things that the rest of society will probably think are completely obnoxious and perhaps we should just accept a little bit that if we're all capable of it, then maybe we can be a little bit forgiving of... Yeah, People it's interesting because I think, yeah, I'm I'm not one for, you know, burning the world won't listen or hat for follow. <laughs> I love Johnny Marr. Um, but there is, it's interesting with certain, I think especially with artists, yeah. where whatever, it's about what the work meant to you. So yes. if it's just somebody go, oh, they were just 
pop songs. Yeah. You might still be able to listen, but you go. Yeah. But Morrissey, I think, for a lot of people, he he meant so, and, yeah. and we thought he was singing for all the sad and lonely people. We didn't mm. realise he was only singing for himself, <laughs> yeah. and we should have known. <laughs> it was all the 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 clues were there. But uh, yeah, I I, agree. I I'm not in any way saying you know other people. I I, I make these decisions because it just gives me more time to listen to other stuff. That's kind of how how I view it. And you were saying this year before we start recording this that you 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 have very little time for for reading outside the area of research but th- this year have there been any books that have particularly stood out that you've been uh, reading well i have to say i've read mainly for research and for stuff that i've blurbed and reviewed um but the things that really stood out for me are related to the book that i've already written but biased by jennifer eberhardt so she's this wonderful um psychologist macarthur genius grant holder no less uh, and a woman <laughs> and she wrote this wonderful um a uh, description of how she has worked with police forces in America to root out institutional racism. And the way she does it is so clever. It's really about recognising bias in society as a whole and in ourselves and kind of reaching across divides using those approaches, which I think is so vital for us now. Her book, I feel, hasn't got the attention it deserves. Um, some people have said that she's not angry enough or she, you know, she doesn't go far enough in her condemnation of racism. But I think what she does is really clever because she recognises that it, this world is not just made up of good and bad people. We are all, I firmly believe, capable of doing terrible things given the worst possible circumstances. Some people, it's, you know, the line is closer than others. But we're all capable of that. We can all believe in bad things. We can all do bad things. And certainly in the history of, if you look at human history, entire populations have fallen under the spell of terrible despots and terrible ideas. We should never feel that we are immune from that. And if we can understand that, then perhaps we can not only guard against that happening to us again and I think there's a real risk of that happening to us again but also um, reach across these divides and find common ground with people that we disagree with Brilliant, thank you very much for joining us uh, Inferior is now in paperback Is uh, Superior, is is that that's imminently in, in it's currently uh, in hardback next summer. next summer, so yeah so you yeah. better buy it in hardback because you can't wait that long, <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us and uh, Josie will be back with us uh, very soon uh, hope you've enjoyed listening to Book Shambles, go to uh, our Cosmic Shambles site where you'll find loads of other things and uh, interviews we've done with other people and articles by scientists and bits and pieces of filming and stuff about mathematics with Matt Parker, all manner of things and also I think something about the European Space Agency is going up soon as well so thank you for listening, bye bye Thank you very much for listening, thank you very much to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge your support for the show. We hope to see you at Nine Lessons in the next couple of weeks and we'll be back next week with another new episode So until then, have yourself an excellent week and uh, let's hope that uh, the Thursday that this has gone out, uh, events have transpired that mean we are able to have a good week and not a really fucking terrible another five years. Bye for now, or possibly forever. Who's to say? This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 